Uh, let me pray for us. Father God, as Graham has already said, these words are grim. But Lord, we thank you for your word, which is a safeguard for the realities of, of sin in our lives and in our hearts. And Father, we pray by your spirit, help us to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in uh, January, uh, we began looking at the book of Hosea, and uh, we covered the first three chapters, uh, which is the outrageous story uh, of the Old Testament prophet Hosea, Uh, being instructed by God to go and marry a prostitute called Gomer as a lived-out parable for the people to show them their unfaithfulness to God. And even when she returns to her lovers, God tells Hosea to go and buy back his wife and to love her again. To me, these are three of the most powerful chapters in Scripture, revealing God's judgment, but also hope for sinful people. And today, as Graham said, we enter uh, chapter 4, and uh, from chapter 4 to the end of Hosea, uh, we are getting laid out for us uh, Israel's sin, God's judgment on Israel. And it is hard listening. It is hard listening. But in it, we see the heart of God to know his people and for his people to know him. And so Hosea, he takes his time over these chapters to lay out their judgment. But if we stick to it, if we listen, if we engage, then the glimmers of hope that are dotted along that journey from judgment do end up with hope, precious and wonderful to us. And so today, as we begin chapter four, Israel is in for what can only be described as a very serious reality check. Uh, Let me tell you a story about Bob and Sally. Bob and Sally have been married for many years, and they are in the middle of a very important conversation. And suddenly, Sally pauses. And she says five words that strike Bob with fear to the very core of his being. What did I just say? What did I just say? Bob hasn't been paying attention. And he starts wondering how much time has passed. What was the last thing that he remembered her saying? And now he has to weigh it up. Does he make a guess or does he not? It's probably going to make things worse rather than better. Let me just replace my mic. Now, I won't ask you to put your hands up as to whether you've ever been in that situation or what your response was. But here's the truth about Bob. He's not been paying attention. And things are in a worse condition than he's allowing himself to believe. And like Bob... The nation of Israel in Hosea's day stopped listening to God a long time ago. Things are not good. And so Hosea needs to get Israel's attention. 
And so he begins, hear the word of the Lord. Listen. But not only have Israel not been listening, they have been drowning God out. They might have been present. They may have shown up for all of their religious duties. But their hearts and their minds are away on things that don't honor God. And so just as Sally may go and stand in front of the telly to get Bob's attention, Hosea is getting in the way. Commentators suggest that Hosea has made his way to uh, one of the shrines, one of the pagan shrines to, to Baal, possibly at Bethel, and he has stood there giving this speech. And his tone is serious. In fact, what he's doing is laying out the legal case for how egregiously the people have broken their covenant with God. Things are worse for Israel than they dare to consider, and there is no more avoiding it. And these words are given to make us sit up and listen before judgment arrives and we realize that we too have not been paying attention. Now, for Israel, their judgment is all but inevitable. They've resisted God's warning for so long that they have become resistant to him. But as we will see, we don't have to go the same way. But it's worth us listening to the warnings that are laid out here for us. And so Hosea begins with uh, taking the first few minutes of his, of his speech in verses 1 to 3 to present an overview of the case against the Israelites and uh, calling this the state of affairs, verses 1 to 3. And note, this is not just one man's opinion. Hosea speaks God's own words to his people. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord has a charge to bring. Now, who's it for? It's for the people. It's addressed to the people living in the land. Now, uh, for God's people, living in the land is a sign of God's blessing. And so it would be easy to think that because they are in the land, all is well between them and God. But their eyes are about to be very much opened. They have utterly and completely broken the covenant that God has made with them. And judgment is on their heels. Now, uh, I've never studied law. I know there are people in the room that have. So, uh, you know, feel free to correct me afterwards, but I'll try. I, I, what I understand is that at the simplest level, a criminal act can be one of three things. It can be an act, so doing something unlawful. It can be a failure to act. Or it can be a state of affairs, an, an unlawful state, like driving under the influence of alcohol. An unlawful act, a failure to act, and a state of affairs. Now, sadly... As Hosea now builds this case against Israel, we see all three come together. He begins here by listing the ways that they have failed to act, their sins of omission. We read here, there is no faithfulness. So what he's saying is that within every sphere of society, honesty and integrity are gone. There is infidelity and distrust on every level. And we read, there is no Love. These are, are God's covenant people, the people that he for generations has shown his covenant love to, but you would never know it by their lack of concern for those in need. They have failed 
to act. And then they have committed unlawful acts. Instead of righteousness, every which way you turn, there is wrongdoing. It's listed cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. Now, those will be familiar to us because those relate to us, the Ten Commandments. They're things that were given to Israel to separate them out from all the other nations as a people who loved God. And yet we read, these are the only things they do. Their appetite is for evil. He could not put it more starkly. It it is nightmarish, the state of what is going on. And adultery seems to be top of the list. It's out of order. Because I think it is within their lifestyles with one another and it is within their hearts spiritually against God. They have broken their vows. And in this sense, it is also a state of affairs. He goes further, he says, uh, they break all bounds. If there are conventions or boundaries put in place to love God and love people, they tear them down. And then we read, bloodshed follows bloodshed. There is no limit to what they will give or take to fulfill their own idolatry. It's not good, is it? And the heart of the issue in this state of affairs is the condition in which they live. We read just a few sentences above, there is no acknowledgement of God in the land, which in one sense is a a failure to act. It's a sin of omission, but I think it's the central issue that runs through the whole of this argument. They no longer recognize God. They've forgotten the God who has saved them, and they are turned away from his ways, from the top of society to the bottom. God is forgotten. And the result now is judgment. We read in verse 3, because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. The devastation that Hosea now pronounces on them reflects the devastation of the state of their covenant with God. And we read a drought is coming. They've been sacrificing to a God of fertility and so God is going to dry up the land so that nothing grows. And this is something that Graham Cook has mentioned previously in the series. In uh, verses, in chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 12. It is a fitting punishment for the nature of their idolatry. Now, I think it's important for us to see that uh, this judgment is not God doing away with his covenant. This isn't God throwing in the towel with his people. In his judging... He is keeping his covenant. Look at these words from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, which read, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands, the fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. This is way back in the covenant he first made, having brought the people out uh, through the Exodus. The covenant was uh, with those who who loved God and and were willing to obey him. They were going to be the ones who would enjoy God's blessing and out of whom all that blessing would overflow to the other nations. 
but there within the covenant, for those who disobeyed, who didn't acknowledge God, there was curse. And now, here in Hosea, we see these curses coming to pass. And to go back to Deuteronomy 28, it is not easy reading. But look here at the language of verse 3 in chapter 4 of Hosea. God's judgment here on Israel reads like the undoing of creation. Do you see that in the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea? And you wonder what Hosea's tone is as he says this. It is likely one of accusation because he's bringing a charge, but you can only imagine there is lament in his voice. To reject God is to reject all life and blessing. And Hosea is watching God's people become undone and God's world too. That is the state of affairs in Israel. So having summarized the charge to the whole nation, we now move to uh, verses 4 to 11, where Hosea speaks directly to the priests, the leaders of lawlessness. You would think if uh, Israel's problem was a lack of acknowledging God, then the solution would be to call on the religious leaders. Just as, you know, when your car's playing up, you call the mechanic. If you've got financial problems, perhaps you call an accountant. If you have a morality and faith issue, you call the religious leaders. But Hosea is getting prepared to uncover their comprehensive failures and the way in which they have been misleading the people. You may have seen uh, on the BBC this uh, new year, the show Traitors has been advertised. And uh, it's a reality game show where three people are chosen in a house full of contestants, they're chosen to be traitors. And they have to deceive everybody else who are regarded as the faithfuls, and they have to kill them off one by one without being found out. There's all sorts of paranoia and tension that goes on as that happens. But much like the show, the priests have played the role of faithfuls so well but all the while wholeheartedly deceiving the people of God. And so Hosea pulls back the hood to expose them and to judge them. You see, the priests, these were the priests of Yahweh. These these are the people who knew about God. Neither the priests nor the people are being judged for something that they had no way of knowing about in this passage. It is their history. It's their their national identity. It's their religious rituals, the story of who God is and his covenant relationship that he wants with them. It's there. The priests should know it. But verse 6 tells us that the priests have rejected knowledge of God. They have ignored the law of God. They've been involved in all the wickedness that the people have been doing. Officiating over pagan practices that are mentioned in verse 13 and themselves getting involved in the drinking and sexually immoral practices around them, verse 14 and 18. And yet, and yet they've been willing to, to have the hood on, to have that disguise, to call themselves faithfuls and to keep hold of their priestly position in order to exploit the people. Hosea uses a little play on words here. He says, they feed on the sins of the people and relish their wickedness. Now, that could just simply mean that the priests um, were kind of enjoyed the spectacle of the sin that was happening. But I I think 
what's likely is that they themselves were benefiting. After all, the Levitical law says that the priests get to eat the food offerings that the people bring. And so as the priests encourage the people to sin, and then they call them back to empty religious practices and lay the guilt on, the priests then get to have their fill. They've utterly deceived the people. And verse 7 tells us that even when the nation prospered, the more priests they had, the more lawlessness. Because of their rejection of God, they have led God's people into lawlessness and consequently destruction. Verse 6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And if the priests think that their religious privilege provides them with protection from these catastrophic failures, they are sorely mistaken. Verse 9, like people, like priests. I'll punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. There are no special favors here. And so now he, in fact, speaks directly to the priests in judgment. Verse 5, he will destroy their mother, which means their leadership, their institution, all of Israel's religious leaders will come to ruin. Verse 6, you have rejected me and my law. I will reject you as my priests. Verses 10 and 11, he says that they have filled their their greedy appetite for sin with with food and prostitution, with alcohol, and now nothing is going to bring them fulfillment. No fruitfulness will come from it. This is judgment for the priests. And there's caution here for us. If we do not want to fall into this same fate of being destroyed from lack of knowledge. It's true today that as believers, we are considered a royal priesthood. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Which means that um, no believer has a greater access than another to the presence of God. Unlike the priest which could enter into the temple. That's true, not even of of elder and pastor. All of us have equal access to God. Yet God has appointed leaders within the church for the benefit of the church. And so we have to consider Christian leaders. And we ourselves, as Christian leaders, myself and the elders, we have to consider that possibility of the slippery slope. And sadly, there remain leaders today who go the same way as the priests and deceive people for their own ends. Marcus Honeyset in his book, Powerful Leaders, says, no Christian leader, no leader of any kind is immune from the dangers of misuse of power and position. Now, we are actually, uh, as an eldership, reading this book so that none of us are drawn into ministering in a way that isn't uh, transparent, so that we minister in a way that is legitimate and loving, because we need guarding against that slippery slope. But Marcus, in his book, goes on to say, authority used correctly is a deeply positive, nurturing thing. The priests were put there for the good and flourishing of the people. They had the opportunity. They were were in the land. They had God's law. God's presence was with the people. This could have been an extraordinary time of blessing. But the priests chose a self-serving agenda. And so we, too, as Christian leaders, have to be cautious But there's also a warning for all of us as a royal priesthood. We all now, wherever and however we serve God, whether that's work or church or or family or friendships, 
We all want to serve others for their knowledge of God rather than a self-serving agenda. And then as we listen to those, all of us, we, we listen at times here on a Sunday as we open God's word, but it might be people that we listen to on, on YouTube or the books that we read or podcasts that we listen to. We all give people that opportunity to teach us and to speak into our lives. And so we must be aware of what they have to gain. Because it might be that they use the right language. The priests, I'm sure, used very convincing religious language. And so we have to test it with the Bible open and with other believers. And as Steve was saying, we have access to all sorts of, we have access to the Bible everywhere. We've got access to so much in the way of great teaching of books written in our language. We in the English-speaking world are enormously blessed with access to good Christian books that long to lead us and teach us and feed us well. And so we have to be discerning, but why not feed ourselves so that we would not end up in that place of being destroyed from lack of knowledge? Now, just a slight caveat here. Knowledge doesn't guarantee godliness. The priests had knowledge. They had knowledge of Yahweh. They had knowledge of his rituals. But knowledge is the way to godliness as it directs us to God. And his covenant love and saving work as it humbles us to love him and be faithful to him. Knowledge can lead us to godliness, but it's not automatic. It can puff us up, can't it? So we must be careful. So in these verses, we are assured that those who have misled others in the name of God, justice will happen. And for Israel's priests, it is coming much sooner than they we're anticipating. But now Hosea turns his attention to the people. These are a people operating under the influence of ignorance. And so verse 14, we get a very kind of similar phrase to the one that we've had already. A people without understanding will come to ruin. So he's turned from addressing the priests, he turns to the people, and he sees all sorts of sin and idolatry. And yet, we don't see Hosea here speaking judgment on them. It seems that Hosea expects that the natural consequences of their sin will destroy their lives. The natural consequences of sin will simply destroy their lives. The people have rejected God, which is the cause of their ignorance, and they have looked to the other cultures around them. Verse 12 we read, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod to speak to them. Now, on one level, on one level, we read this and think that's, for, you know, it's foreign language that's kind of different to anything that we, we do. But just as easily, we turn to glass screen idols, silicon electronic idols, making our enormous offerings of time and money to them so that they might provide to us some meaning or fulfillment or security. We are not immune to idolatry. And then he says, a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their gods. And we too live in a culture that is charmed and obsessed by sex. It's been said before that sex is the wallpaper of our society. 
And it teaches us that people are there to be consumed, whether digitally or physically. The bar, it seems, is consent, not covenant, as God gives it. That higher requirement to enjoy sex. But we read here in verse 14 that Hosea points out that the female prostitutes aren't going to be singled out for judgment because the guys are equally culpable. They are the ones showing up to the shrines and, in a sense, driving the need for temple prostitutes. The people have been taken in by idolatry and sexual immorality. And verse 13, I think, highlights how backwards the whole nation has become. They, we're told that they like to sit under the, the shade of the trees in the places of pagan worship, which seems like an odd detail to be given. They like to sit in the shade. But it's, it, there seems to be a contrast here with an image used at the end of Hosea in chapter 14, where God wants the nation to be this enormous tree, a nation under which all other nations and peoples will come and find shade and blessing. And yet in chapter 4, we have this image of the Israelites just enjoying the shade for themselves in the places of idolatry. They've turned to their own self-interests, their own comfort, their own well-being, and even finding it under the provision of the places that don't honor God. Do you see how the whole, God's whole hope for his nation is just utterly upside down? We read they are... Verse 16, they're stubborn like a cow, being unwilling to be led. When God wants to lead them like lambs to green pastures. And here's the thing, as image after image is used, as accusation after accusation is made about Israel, it is tempting to kind of point the finger at them, to, to judge them, or even to look at our culture around us and to, po- and to point our finger at our culture in our day around us. But we cannot stand up to these things ourselves. Because we find that we are only pointing the finger back at ourselves. We are drawn in and tempted in the same ways that they are tempted. We have gone the way of our culture in different ways into godlessness. And maybe we see like that. The cow, we see that resistance and stubbornness in our own obedience to God. Now, we may have our excuses ready, like the priests who try to blame it on the alcohol. We may, you may, too, have that problem. It might be alcohol, it might be something else, something that you can easily kind of pass the blame off onto, something that takes you outside of your being, kind of being in control of yourself but we get these truly tragic words which say that even when the drink is gone, they return to their shameful ways because they love them. Can it get any worse? This is the crux of it, isn't it? We give our hearts to what we worship. And we can be blinded by that love so much but it blinds our love for God, our desire to know him, to live faithfully for him. And friends, no one can balance both. No one can juggle both sin and and faithfulness. 
We can make our justifications for our ignorance and find our excuses, but where we choose sin, we are giving our hearts to it. The beginning of the reality check is all but complete. They have given their hearts away. There is no longer a desire to know God. And verse 19, the judgment comes. A whirlwind will sweep them away. God is going to employ another nation to destroy them completely. And their legacy will be what they gave their hearts to. And it will be only shame. It is bleak. Israel seemingly are so far down the road that judgment is all but inevitable for them. But where these things weigh heavy on our hearts this morning, where all of us see our ability to go the wrong way, we see that we don't have to go the same way as Israel. We don't have to. You don't have to. There is another way. Hosea calls to the southern kingdom in verse 15. He calls down to Judah, pointing at Israel and pleading with Judah not to go the same way. There's still a chance for Judah. And the very fact that Hosea is standing there in front of Israel is an indication that they can still return. This is the guy, this is the guy who did something so totally opposite to the culture. He listened to God and he married Gomer, his promiscuous wife. He's there, this is the one delivering the message. And so there is this opportunity for all those who are listening, hearing these words of judgment to see that perhaps with God, there is a different way. Perhaps with Hosea's God, they can return. But perhaps... Perhaps their ignorance about God means that they can no longer conceive that God is willing to take them back. Yet we this morning have no cause to be ignorant about God as they were. Because God has given us someone greater than Hosea. In John's gospel, Jesus stands in a similar way in front of the religious leaders of the day who are ignorant about who God is and who Jesus is. And speaking about God the Father, Jesus says, though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I obey his word. Friends, Jesus is ignorant of nothing. He knows God. He loves his father. He has been a perfectly obedient son. He is the one we can trust and listen to. And the reality is he is not ignorant of our own sin. He knows, he says to them, you're lying. He knows their sin and he knows our sin. And yet the glorious truth is Jesus, in full knowledge of God and obedience to God, was destroyed on the cross. He came to ruin so that you might find restoration even today. However far we've strayed, his ruin 
brings our restoration with God. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Friends, are we listening to Jesus? What did Jesus just say? He's interrupting us. He's getting in our way. But he says, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Jesus is speaking words of love and grace. He is giving us a way back. If we give, if we, if we give our hearts to him alone, turning from those things that lead us into ignorance and embrace the one and give full attention to the one who loves us. Do you hear him speaking to you this morning? Do you hear that word of love calling you to return? Let us pray. Father, it is not enjoyable to read these words of judgment. Particularly as we know that our hearts are so quickly drawn in to the sin that we've read about. But Lord, we thank you that there is another way. Father, I pray, have mercy on us this morning. Speak to us. Get in our way and make us aware of that sin in our lives that may lead us away from you and into ignorance. And Lord, lead us back. Away from ruin. Away from destruction. And bring us back into your loving arms. We're astonished by your grace, Lord. We are not worthy. But we look to you and we listen. And we thank you. We love you, Lord Jesus.